Last week we looked at Matthew 13, 44 to 46, if you were here with us. And uh, I preached a message last week that was really close to my heart. I preached a message called The Disciples' Treasure. And I argued that the gospel and Christ himself, God himself, is the believer's greatest treasure. He is our greatest treasure. And we saw that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, a treasure that is worth selling everything in order to obtain. We saw that knowing God through Jesus Christ is worth more than anything and everything else. That nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and of living our lives for His glory, for His sake. And I argued that seeing Christ as a treasure is really the only way that we can take up our cross and follow after Him. If He's not more valuable to us than anything else, then we will not be able to follow Him if if those other things are available to us. We will go to those other things instead of looking to Him. If I love something more than Christ, I will choose that thing over Him. And to become a Christian, God must open our eyes to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, naturally, we choose the things of this world. We, we naturally choose our sin over God. And so God must open our eyes. Now, I hope that, that these things resonate with you. I, I hope that you know the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you don't always feel that joy, I, I pray that you know that joy. And I hope you realize that you're living the best possible life when you choose to put Christ first in everything that you do. I hope you see it as a, a great privilege of your life to lose your life for Jesus' sake. Now today, we're going to look at what we could kind of call the opposite side of this equation. On the one hand, we're to pursue Christ, we're to seek first the kingdom of heaven, we're to first seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. But on the other side, we are to forsake sin. If we chase after Christ, we naturally run away from sin. To love Christ is to hate sin. We can't love sin when we see that those sins were the reason that Jesus Christ was crucified. Christ suffered and died because of our sin. We can't love sin when we see that that those sins were the very reason that our Lord was crucified. We can't love that which killed our Savior. We can't love God and that which is contrary to God. We must choose. We either love the one and hate the other. We are devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot love God and sin. And the true Christian is one who does not love sin. But because we live in what the Apostle Paul calls the, this body of sin, we still have to fight against sin in this life. The true believer has sin in their life that they must fight against really our entire lives. Fundamentally, the Christian has been transformed so that he or she no longer loves sin and is no longer a slave to sin, but the remnant of the flesh remains in us. And old habits and old thought patterns and even old desires of the flesh remain in us and we must fight against those things. We are new creatures in Christ But we must continue to grow into who He created us to be. We've been crucified with Christ. A death blow has been dealt to our flesh, but we still must put to death what is earthly in us. The Christian is in a battle against sin. The Christian fights to treasure Christ and to put Him first every moment of his or her life. And our text this morning is designed to help us in this battle. So far in this sermon, Jesus described the Christian that 
that he or she is a different kind of person. We're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. The, the Christian is a poor in spirit person. The Christian is meek. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He's even persecuted for righteousness sake. The Christian is then called to function in the world according to what he is. God has changed us and now we're to live out what we are in the world. We are salt and we are light. And we're to be salt and light. We're to glorify God in the world by being who God made us to be. But with this, there is a a warning. There's a, a severe warning that really runs throughout this whole sermon. If you, if we are, if you are not salt and light, and if we do not demonstrate the characteristics of the Beatitudes, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so look at Matthew 5.20, for example, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Christian is a person who is righteous. We're not perfect. We were those in verse 6 who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not as righteous as we would like to be, but we are at the same time, at the same time, we're not what we once were. Right? We're, we're, we're different than we once were, and yet we're not as righteous as we'd like to be. We've been transformed by grace. And so we care about righteousness at a level that is far deeper than even very religious people like the scribes and the Pharisees. We are those who fight against sin even where many don't even recognize sin. And from Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 to the conclusion of this sermon, Jesus describes the exceeding righteousness that a true disciple of Christ has. True righteousness before God is lived out in our relationships with other people. And that's really important for us to grasp. Righteousness, according to Jesus, is seen in how we relate with other people. Now last time, as we looked at this sermon in in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 5, we saw that anger in our hearts is a dangerous sin. Our, our righteousness is a righteousness that, that fights against anger, even in our hearts. We saw the extent to which we are called to go in order to be at peace with all men. And today we're going to look at verses 27 to 30, where we see the dangers of lust and what we must do to fight against it. I called this message, Righteousness in Relationships Part 2, And this part is the part on lust. And all of these next few verses are going to be righteousness in relationships in various ways. But this is righteousness in relationships part two. And we're dealing with the topic of lust here. Look at verse 27. This is our text for this morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now these are some of the strongest words in Scripture on the dangers of sin. You know, I can't think of another passage that more forcibly exhorts us to put sin to death. In this text, our Lord presses upon us the depth of holiness that we are called to as his disciples. He shows us the length to which we must go to root out sin in our lives. Plus, he warns of the dangers of being careless or lackadaisical in this area. You know, this is not something that we can afford to be wrong on. Jesus repeats twice, your whole body be thrown into hell or your whole body go into hell. 
The Lord does not take this issue lightly, and neither should we. Without the righteousness that the Lord calls us to here, again, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we look at this text, we're going to divide it into two sections, and we're going to see two aspects of the Christian's righteousness. Two aspects of the Christian's righteousness. And the first one is that our righteousness must be an internal righteousness of the heart. Our righteousness must be an internal righteousness of the heart. And we're going to see that in verses 27 and 28. Our righteousness must be, and we're going to see two ways that our righteousness must be. First of all, the internal righteousness of the heart. And we saw this same emphasis last time in verses 21 and 22 where Jesus warned about the danger that anger in the heart and that, 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 that anger in the heart made one liable to the judgment of hell. Anger is murder of the heart. God judges not only the outward actions, not only the, the outward action of, say, murder, but even the inward heart of anger. God judges the outward actions and the inward thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God sees our hearts. Just before that, Hebrews 4.12 talks about how God's Word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so what happens inside our thoughts and our imaginations is not hidden from God. Others might not see it, but all are exposed to His holy eyes. And God will bring every deed into judgment. That's Ecclesiastes 12.14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And every deed there includes the deeds of our hearts, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. What God sees in His universe, He will judge. And He sees every secret thing. He sees every thought, every intention, every desire, every imagination. No creature, and we are His creatures, no creature, Hebrews 4.13, is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And so we're going to give an account for our hearts as well as our actions. Our righteousness, therefore, must be an internal righteousness of the heart. The Christian is one who wants to please God. We know that we could never perfectly please God and that we could only come to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But having come to God through Christ, we now want to live a life that honors and glorifies God. And we know that God sees and knows and cares about our hearts. We live our lives before God. Every moment of our lives, we live before a holy God. And we're not so much concerned as a Christian about what men think of us as they look at us, but we're concerned about what God thinks as He looks at us. For Samuel 16.7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, speaking about Saul. And then the Lord says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, religious hypocrites and phonies only really care about how they appear in the eyes of men. They want to look good in front of men, but they ignore, or they at least largely ignore, the thoughts of their hearts. And that's how the, the scribes and the Pharisees were. They, they thought that they were righteous so long as they didn't commit actual adultery. They thought if they refrained from committing adultery, they thought that they fulfilled the law. But Jesus says, no, the citizens of his kingdom are going to have a righteousness beyond that. They're going to honor the spirit of the law in their hearts. And so look at verse 27 again. You have heard that it was said, 
You shall not commit adultery. In verse 21, Jesus has said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, literally to the ancients. Jesus drops here to those of old, but he's still talking about the same thing. He's quoting from the law given to the generations that lived in the days of Moses. And so Exodus 20 and verse 14 says simply, you shall not commit adultery. And again, repeated in Deuteronomy 5.18, and you shall not commit adultery. Adultery refers to physical intimacy between a man and a woman when one or both of them is married to somebody else. Adultery is breaking the marriage covenant between a man and a woman by having relations with somebody outside of that one flesh union. Adultery breaks covenant with the marriage partner, a covenant that is made before God. And by breaking covenant, I mean that adultery violates the commitments that are made in the marriage vows. In marriage, God joins two people in a one flesh union in which those two agree to be faithful to one another for life. And adultery violates that agreement in the worst possible way. Now the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day, they would not commit adultery. They were committed to not committing adultery, but many of them would divorce their wives so that they could marry another woman and then have intimacy with her. And so they found a way, at least in their own minds, around the law. And they also apparently had really no concern with thinking about other women and fantasizing about them in their minds. One of the schools of the rabbis even taught that you could divorce your wife and marry another if you found a pretty, a prettier woman who is willing to marry you. And to this kind of thinking, Jesus applies the true spirit of the law and the true standard of righteousness. When he says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so again, sin is not merely the outward action, but sin includes the internal inward desire. Now let's note a few things about verse 28 as we look at this. Jesus is once again here showing his authority. When he says there, I say to you, or but I say to you, there's an emphasis On his own words, we could translate this, but I myself say to you, Jesus puts his own words on par with and even above the word of God given to the generations of old. As the one who fulfills the law as the Messiah, we expect him to be the true interpreter of God's law. And Jesus here lays down for us what kind of righteousness God demands. Now next notice that Jesus says, Everyone who looks. Everyone who looks at a woman. Now, this is not only for married men. This adultery could include single men, could include young unmarried people. And that's what we get from the word everyone there. Everyone who looks at a woman. And, and, and by the way of application, everyone could even include women in this sin. And so this command by our Lord is for everyone. Everyone who looks is a way of grouping the people into a category. Everyone who belongs to this group that looks with lustful intent is guilty of something. And what are they guilty of? They have already, the Lord says, committed adultery in their hearts. Now the word looks in our text the word says everyone who looks that that word looks is in the present tense now the 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 present tense here can mean one of two things and i think it actually ends up including both of these things but looks could mean that that this looking is an ongoing continuous action Right? This is a, a, another way of saying this looking with an ongoing continuous action might be a, a word like gawking or, um, you know, do you know the word gawking? 
Okay, gawking, kind of, you know, jaw open, uh, kind of a, you know, looking, a, a staring. Um, another, I, actually, I asked the guys for the plowtage word for this, and this is glorn. Do you guys know glorn? I have no idea. I was, I was a little nervous, actually, that I might, you guys might be tricking me, but, um, gl- so everyone who looks like kind of in an ongoing, continuous way. And now another way to understand the present tense here would be to understand it as a habitual practice. The, the, the idea that, that this is kind of a, a constant pattern in somebody's life. And the purpose of this look is literally to desire her or to lust for her. The ESV translates it with lustful intent or the New American Standard with lust for her. The Holman Christian Standard that whoever looks or everyone who looks to lust for her or the, the updated version of that, the Christian Standard Bible looks at a woman lustfully. And those are really all the idea of this word. The, again, the reason for the look is lust in the heart. And whether the look is an ongoing action or a habitual one, either way, if the purpose is to lust or to have lustful thoughts or to fantasize about this other person, Jesus says this is sin. Now the, the word lust there is, is simply the word for desire and it can be for any kind of desire. In this context, lust is the right translation, but we shouldn't limit this too much. Jesus is speaking against really uh, every kind of sin here, every kind of desire of another person. In, in fact, really what it seems like Jesus is doing is he's speaking very much uh, in the line of, the, of what we call the 10th commandment, which is this, Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is, again, to desire. Now, one might covet a neighbor's wife for any number of reasons. They tell me that women typically aren't as attracted to the outward appearance as much as men, but if we want to apply this to women, we could we could apply it this way, looking to desire a, a, another woman or another man could include any number of reasons, right? It might not only be physical attraction, but it could be anything from physical attraction and a desire for sexual gratification to other kinds of attraction like character, personality, wealth. You know, you could covet another man's husband because they're wealthier or because they have certain kinds of skills like cooking or cleaning or work ethic or really anything that you could think of could kind of come into this idea of looking at a person with desire. To look at someone else who is not your wife or your husband with a desire for that person is a form of adultery in the heart. And at that moment, you're not acting according to your marriage vows if you are married. Now, if you're not married, those thoughts should be reserved for the person who you will one day marry. Or if you've got the gift of singleness, which 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, you're to put away those thoughts. Now, I should say then that this isn't talking about an accidental glance. This isn't talking about noticing another person. Even the Holy Spirit said about Esther in Esther 2.7, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Or Esther 2.7 in the New American Standard Bible says, now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. Literally, she was beautiful uh, of good appearance. Let me kind of quote how a few commentators explained this. Charles Quarles said, quote, The look is not a fleeting glance that triggers a sexual thought that is then quickly dismissed from the mind. The look is a lingering look. He goes on to say, this is a sensual stare, a lustful gawking. This has important ramifications for the application of Jesus' teaching. He did not intend that men or women hide their eyes from any beautiful or handsome member of the opposite sex, 
nor did he teach that it was wrong to admire someone's appearance. The lustful look locks eyes on another person and uses him or her to fuel one's sexual imagination. End quote. Or John MacArthur said, quote, The idea is not that of an incidental or involuntary glance, but of intentional and repeated gazing. Again, he said, when a man happens to see a woman provocatively dressed, Satan will surely try to tempt that man with lustful thoughts. But there is no sin if the temptation is resisted and the gaze is turned elsewhere. It is the continuing to look in order to satisfy the lustful desires that Jesus condemns because it evidences a vile, immoral heart. End quote. Now, if we think about this, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. And the Lord Jesus Christ surely saw attractive women, but he never once looked at them with lustful intent. Now, let me give you some of the kinds of things this would include when we're thinking about this sin in particular. This would include looking at another person in order to have lustful thoughts about them. Or saving up a mental picture of someone in order to have lustful thoughts about them at some other time. This would include lingering looks at people for lustful intent in other non-real, non-live situations like pictures in books or magazines or movies or on the internet websites or video games or other similar kinds of places where there's more opportunity for extended kinds of looks. Any kind of imagining, meditating on, fantasizing about somebody real or imagined would be included in this sin. You see, whether you carry through with the thought and commit actual adultery or not, just having the desire in your heart, that itself is sin. Again, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think very many people would be willing to admit that we are called to have an internal righteousness of the heart and even be willing to acknowledge that this adultery of the heart is sin. But a great majority of people will not take Jesus' words here seriously enough. Adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by death. According to Jesus in the, the next two verses, we'll see that adultery of the heart is punishable by spiritual death. The sin of the heart, the, the sin of lust in the heart, if not forsaken, leads to hell. The Apostle Paul said it this way, and actually, why don't we turn to these passages. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see these and, and feel the weight of these passages. Go to Ephesians 5 and verse 5. Apostle Paul says there, you may be sure of this. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the sexually immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so the Apostle Paul says, if, if these things are in your heart and these things characterize you, then you are a son of disobedience and do not be deceived. You will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, another parallel passage. And we'll start there at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so there's hope if you are one of these things there's hope for you to turn but if you remain as one of these things you are the unrighteous and you will not inherit the kingdom of God and again Paul emphasizes this idea do not be deceived about this there's a washing that happens in the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin that makes us turn away from these things now a man or a woman might still struggle with some of these things as a Christian but there should be a, a growth out of these things and a, our lives should be characterized by righteousness and not by unrighteousness. Now let's go to one more and that's in Galatians chapter 5. And when we see this same thing repeated three times in the New Testament and even in our passage, it should cause us to have a certain amount of fear about these sins. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's those who do such things, present tense, those whose lives are characterized by ongoing, continual, habitual practice of such things. Such, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul then is exactly aligned with Jesus on this point. Do not be deceived on this point. Now, if you are struggling with lust or if you are fully given over in it and anywhere in between, I want to tell you this morning that your soul is in danger. Your soul is in danger. And, and I fear that we don't take this seriously enough. Jesus warns us to take what's happening in our hearts seriously. And we're going to call this then as we look at what he calls us to in, in verses 29 and 30, we're going to call this the second aspect of the Christian's righteousness. And that's number two, our righteousness must take radical action against sin. Our righteousness must take radical action against sin. Look back at verse 29. Let me read the whole thing again, actually, verse, starting at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now verses 29 and 30 teach us to take radical action against sin in our hearts. Radical means extreme or, or thorough or total action against sin. Colossians 3 and verse 5 says it this way, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's the idea of radical here. Put to death. You know, you don't put something to death lightly. Right? You know, you don't put something to death partly. You put something to death completely, fully, thoroughly. This is a, an extreme battle that the Lord calls us to against sin. We're to put it to death. We're to make war with our sin. If lust, or if any other sin for that matter, is impacting your life, you need to destroy it 
before it destroys you. You need to kill sin before sin kills you. For the love of your soul and for the glory of God, it's time to take drastic action against sin. That's what Jesus is saying by way of these two conditional statements in verses 29 and 30. Notice there's these two if-then statements. If and then then. If, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, then tear it out and throw it away. Or verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, if that's the case, then cut it off and throw it away. And both statements have a similar explanation following them. Verse 29, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And verse 30, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now before we all pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands, we need to think about this just a a little bit. What is the Lord asking us to do here? The if statement that that Jesus makes here is called a a first class condition. Now you can, you don't need to remember that, but it's called a first class condition. And the idea is that he assumes that the right eye is the cause of sin for the sake of the argument that he's about to make. He's just assuming, let's assume that the, the eye is the cause of sin. Well, if the eye is the cause of sin, if that's the case, then go ahead and cut it off, pluck it out. The verb there translated causes to sin is a, is a really interesting word. It was originally used or came from a word that meant a trap. And the idea is of, of setting a, a trap for an animal, setting a, laying a snare or, or laying some kind of a trap. And it refers to anything that leads somebody away from the right conduct and into sin. It includes any kind of sin from the sin of unbelief and rejecting Christ to the, the sin of lust or any other kind of sin. Sin is like a trap that will lead you to hell, right? Isn't, isn't sin like a trap? You think that you're going to get something good, right? You think that there's going to be some kind of a pleasure or good thing in sin. And then when you get caught in it, you realize that it's actually a trap. And that trap, in this case, leads to hell. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this section, said this, a popular proverb goes, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. And that's kind of how sin works in this thing. It's, it's one little thought that is sown, that is then acted upon, that then grows and grows until it becomes a habit and a character. And then that character reaps a destiny. And that destiny is hell. And so Jesus is saying, if your eye is trapping you into sin, then tear it out, take it out, throw it away. And if your hand is trapping you into sin, if it's causing you to turn aside from God's ways, Jesus says, cut it off, cut it down, like cutting down a tree and then throw it away and throw it from you. Now, why do we do that? Because again, it would be better, it'd be more profitable, it'd be more useful for you to enter into life without those parts of the body than for the whole body to be enter into hell. Now, of course, again, the right hand and the right eye were always viewed as the stronger side of the body, the, the stronger side of, of the warrior. His, his sword was in his right hand and his right eye would kind of look past the shield. It was the strong eye for the archer too, at least for those that were right-handed. And so what this means then is that if your best part your strongest member, if, if, if the, the most useful part of your body is causing you to sin, then get rid of it. Now, of course, again, our eye is not the cause of sin, right? The, the sin comes from our hearts. Our hand is not the cause of sin. Sin, our hand might be used in sin, but, but the hand is not the cause. We sin, And our eye and our hands are used to sin because there's something wrong in our hearts. Even with no eyes, 
a man or a woman could still struggle with lust. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his commentary. He says, he's saying that, speaking about our Lord, he's, quote, he's saying that however valuable a thing may be to you in and of itself, if it is going to trap you and cause you to stumble, get rid of it, throw it away. Such is his way of emphasizing the importance of holiness and the terrible danger which confronts us as a result of sin. End quote. And so even if it meant cutting off your own hand or plucking out your own eye, almost nothing is too extreme in our battle against sin. Well, if cutting off our members won't stop sin, right? If, and, and I want you to all to know that, that cutting out your eyes, cutting off your hands won't stop sin in your life. So I don't want anyone to leave here and go and pluck out their eyes, cut off their hands. You know, there, there's an unfortunate story about a, an early church father named Origen who actually emasculated himself early in his Christian life because he was so serious about this fight against sin in his life that he realized years later that it didn't actually do anything in his fight against sin and he regretted that thing. Uh, sad, sad story. But that's the kind of devotion that we're called to here. This is how seriously the Lord wants us to take sin. And so, first of all, what the Lord's calling us to is to get rid of all occasion for sin. Wherever you are tempted to sin, if you possibly can, if you can possibly avoid that place, get rid of that opportunity. Examples might be uh, avoid the magazine aisle of a store. Or don't go to that store if you can't avoid going to that aisle. If you can't keep off certain sinful websites, then get rid of your computer or get rid of your internet and get rid of your smartphone. Get some kind of program installed that keeps certain images from appearing on your computer. There could be times where you need to take a, a lower paying job to keep you from certain opportunities to, to sin if your job is providing opportunities for you to sin. Now, you may notice that, that of all these examples I give, none of those things are actually going to change your heart. They won't, but they can keep you from the opportunities to sin while you work on your heart. Now, we're dependent on God really to change our hearts, but our job, what we're called to do, is to starve the things that tempt us into sin. And we're to pray and ask God to remove the idols in our lives that, that draw us into sin, and we're to pursue holiness in our lives. In Psalm 119, verse 37, listen to the prayer of the psalmist. He says, "...turn my eyes from looking at worthless things." or vanity, and give me life in your ways. Confirm your servant in your promise that you may be feared. Or the same verse in the New American Standard Bible says, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. That's kind of the idea that we're to, to pray that the Lord would, would change our hearts and turn our eyes from looking at things that are vanity. Job said it this way, Job 31. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, he says, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed towards a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon and it would burn to the root all my increase." And so Job made a covenant 
with his eyes. And he tells us that he recognizes this kind of a sin as something that is worthy of punishment, even the punishment of hell. And so the righteous person sees the evil of sin and commits to forsake that sin and prays, Lord, keep me from temptation. Now let me tell you then on the other side what a righteous person does not do. A righteous person does not say, my sin, my, my looking at lust, that's not really hurting anybody. You know, it, it only affects me a little. The, the kind of thinking that, that thinks that, that this is a, a thing that's really no big deal. That the, the, the righteous heart doesn't think, I can keep this one little secret sin. I can keep this one little pleasure for myself. A man once told me that he had, he had kind of put a little secret sin like that, a, a lustful kind of looking sin kind of on the shelf so that he could get at it one other day and it wrecked, it wrecked his life. I saw the, the damage that that one little secret sin did to that man's life. It's a, a fearful thing. A righteous person doesn't think, I deserve this sin as a reward. Or a righteous person doesn't think, I can keep this door to this sin open so that I can go back to it later if I find that, that something else doesn't truly satisfy. A righteous person doesn't think, it's just a little pornography, everybody does it. Listen, brothers and sisters, if, if you aren't holy, your lack of holiness does hurt those around you because we need to be positively affecting one another. Often people think, oh, it's, it's really not hurting anybody but me. But no, my friend, you, your holiness needs to be affecting the body of Christ. And if it's not affecting for good, it is hurting people besides you. It is hurting especially your spouse and, 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 and God. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness said, quote, for another thing, and he's talking here about being a true Christian, for another thing, being a true Christian will cost a man his sins. He must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labor to keep it under whatever the world around him may think. He must do this honestly and fairly. He says there must be no separate truth with truce with any special sin which he loves. He must count all sins as his deadly enemies and hate every false way whether little or great, whether open or secret, all his sins must be thoroughly renounced. He goes on to say, he says, this also sounds hard. I do not wonder. He says, our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them. We hug them. We cleave to them and delight in them. To part with them is as hard as cutting off a right hand or plucking out a right eye, but it must be done. Now last week I told you that if we don't receive Christ as a treasure, we cannot be his true disciple. But today we've seen the the converse truth that if we don't forsake our sins, we cannot treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus warns us that unrepentant sin leads to hell. The true Christian will battle with sin. The, the true Christian even will sin, but he loathes it and he hates it and he turns from it and he repents of it when it happens in his life and he, he runs from that thing. He flees that thing. Jesus warns us that if we don't forsake sin, our whole body will be thrown into hell. Our whole body will go into hell. And so friends, don't take this lightly. You know, many will discover on that day of judgment that they never truly hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Many will discover on that day of judgment that they were not truly Christians. And this teaching of our Lord then really, I, I believe, condemns all of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones closed his sermon on this text with this quote, 
God forbid that any of us should be able to look at this holy law of God and feel satisfied. If we do not feel unclean at this moment, God have mercy on us. And he went on to say we must listen to the teaching of the blessed Son of God and examine ourselves, examine our thoughts, our desires, and our imagination. And unless we feel that we are vile and foul and need to be washed and cleansed, unless we feel utterly helpless with a terrible poverty of spirit, and unless we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I say, God, have mercy on us. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. This text shows us the internal righteousness of the heart that God demands. And it also shows us that we must take radical action against sin. And all of it together shows us that we could never earn God's favor apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ can we stand before God. Only in Christ can we have this level of righteousness in our lives. Only in Christ can we be who we are called to be in this Sermon on the Mount. We're going to respond to the message today by singing, In Christ Alone. He is our only hope. He is the only one who can give us this victory. He's the only one that can free us from sin. He's the only one that can change our hearts to treasure Him and to turn from sin the way that God truly deserves. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up. Lord, we thank You for these strong words against sin. We pray, Lord, that in Jesus Christ You would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our sins and make us holy for Your sake. Lord, we pray for any that are here today that are are struggling with sin, that maybe don't even know You and aren't saved. We pray that You would draw them to Yourself. Make them see the danger of their sin and help them to turn to You this morning. We pray for any of us who are struggling with sin that You would give us victory and and give us the resolve to turn from sin with the vigor that You'd call us to in this passage. Lord, make us holy for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.